Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic, starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Jake Vanderslice. Hi, Jake. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, Jake is a brother from the Collective Genius Mastermind. He's also in the Freedom Founders Mastermind. And uh, he is a brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, love working with him. And he's a specialist in self-storage. Um, Jake, tell us a little bit about your family. That's the most important thing. You uh, manage uh, a lot of self-storage facilities. Uh, I know you have other investments, but your expertise is self-storage, but most importantly, your family. I know you've got a couple of small kids. We do. We've got, uh, we've got two boys. Uh, one is almost two and a half, and the other is uh, 10 months. So got a lot going on at home, but they're, they're a blast. I, I come to my office all day and work and, and get home and... Uh, you know, the, the fun continues. Yeah, that, that's the why. It's very important to have a great family. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing great though. Our youngest is uh, getting close to walking and uh, our oldest is beating up on them nicely. So it's a, it's a lot of fun at home. Yeah, and you got to watch out when they, they get mobile. <laughs> that's right, yep, yep. We've got gates and stuff all over the house and outlet covers and you name it. That's right. Um, so... Tell, tell the audience a little bit about uh, you. How did you get started? How did you, how did you wind up in self-storage? Well, I got started investing in real estate full-time in about 2005. I was in the fire service and had a lot of days off um, and got busy doing real estate and, uh, and quit my job and I've been unemployed ever since. Uh, we, we've done about 1,200 fix and flips over the years and we still do those. Uh, we got into commercial real estate in 13 and 14 with uh, various adaptive reuse retail projects around town, uh, just converting old warehouses into breweries, restaurants, yoga studios. Um, and then we got in the self-storage business in uh, 2015 with some institutional partners. And we like the space because it's scalable, repeatable, predictable. And uh, the data at the time suggested that it was uh, historically resistant to downturns. And so far, that theory seems to be holding water in this downturn. Um, obviously we got a lot of, uh, uncharted territory in front of us. Um, but yeah, we grew the portfolio from there expanded into multiple States. Uh, we launched a fund last year. Uh, we're launching a second fund, uh, in Q4 of this year. Um, really the goal of our, of our self-storage investment thesis is just repeatable, predictable revenue streams with, uh, with downside mitigation. And we found that asset class is a good vehicle to, uh, to be able to realize that. I agree with that. As far as I know, you're investing mostly in existing facilities that have uh, cash yeah, flows with we, some we've value. Done a, yeah, we've done a fair amount of ground-up deals over the years. Um, really, the last two and a half, three years, we've focused on value-add existing facilities. We've bought a few deals at certificate of occupancy uh, that are lease-up projects, but we like the immediate revenue generation when you buy a deal that's already substantially occupied uh, with good historic financials. And uh, we're not going to be developing ground up anytime in the, in the near term, just given what's happening out there with this environment. Uh, so, yeah, we're just focused on existing facilities right now that are inefficiently managed, inefficiently marketed, and we can leverage our management and technology platform to make them better. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, the cash flow is uh, a sort of a, a secure, it's a secure uh, feeling to have a cash flow today. And, and if you start with decent cash flow and you can improve it, it's a whole lot less risk than taking on a full lease up. So just for the audience, on a normal lease up, how long does it take to lease up a facility that's certificate uh, occupancy ready? It's basically ready for lease up. How long does it take to lease up? Yeah, it depends on the market. Uh, you know, easily 18, 24 months. You, you could see a 36-month lease up too, uh, just depending on the supply ratios and the submarket, your rates, your marketing. Uh, but it's a, it's a long-term endeavor to, uh, endeavor to stabilize an empty self-storage facility. Yeah, it's a, it's a painful process. At least it feels that way. So, but the beauty about self-storage, so what are the main benefits of self-storage? Uh, everybody knows about no tenants and toilets, but beyond that, yeah. what are the, uh, the big benefits? Yeah, one of the main things we like about the asset class is the granularity of the income streams. You're, you're relying on, in our case, thousands of people to pay us tiny bits of rent every month uh, versus in our retail projects, for example, we have a brewery paying us $15,000 a month and they're either going to pay or they're not. And if they don't, it's a long process to get them out and find a new tenant, not to mention very expensive. Um, in self-storage, people are paying you $100 a month. And if they don't pay, um, you, can, you can turn off their gate access, you can overlock their unit and get a new customer in there that is paying. Uh, we also like the fact that the revenue management and self-storage is very dynamic. So in self-storage as an asset class, you can respond real time to supply and demand changes within the submarket because the leases are all month to month. So for example, if you have a unit type that's in high demand, you can incrementally raise rates on that unit type. And likewise, with the, with the unit type in lower demand, you can, you can lower rates until you drive occupancy and start to increase incrementally over time. So we like, yeah. we like how dynamic it is on the revenue side. I like that too. As long as you don't get an oversupplied market, uh, as long as you don't want, you, you don't wind up in a situation where you have to <laughs> lower the rents. Uh, uh, but I, I, I do uh, completely understand the thesis, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, even the big boys, the you know, Cube Smarts, have optimization algorithms that uh, drive the occupancy first, and then when the occupancy is high, then they push the rents up. Yeah, so, that's the game. You're you're not as concerned about rates when you're when you're in lease up, and once you get to a critical mass, you can start really um, pushing rates up, pushing rates up, and and really optimizing your revenue streams. Yeah, it makes ton of sense, and and um, uh, uh, makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about your funds. I know your fund. Are you closed your first fund? I know you're working on a second fund. The first one, are you are you done? You completed all the capital raising and. Uh, uh, acquire the assets? What, what, yeah, we're, we're really close to closing it out. Uh, we've got a few more facilities that we're closing this week and next week. We've got a portfolio in Tennessee that closes tomorrow. Uh, and we've got a, uh, a single asset deal in Southern Illinois that closes the following week. And after those deals are closed, we'll be really close to closing out the fund. We might put in one more acquisition before we uh, close it to, to new investment and new acquisitions. Um, but the fund really has been focused on dividend, uh, predictable dividend and yield uh, to our capital base, which is why we've acquired facilities that don't require uh, substantial capital improvement budgets, uh, deals that don't have a lot of heavy lifting on the value creation side, especially kind of in and post-COVID. Uh, we selected acquisitions that were uh, financially good enough to not make it better. They just stand on their own without improving the revenue stream or optimizing expenses. And obviously, we, we believe we can do both those things and add some more meat to the bone. 
Um, but yeah, we're getting close to closing it out and uh, we're still working on structuring fund two and what that looks like, but hopefully that gets off the ground by the end of this year. And uh, I think overall it'll be a pretty similar strategy, just uh, larger basis deals and some more uh, geographic diversification. Sounds good. Uh, so what kind of uh, distributions have you been paying in, in just the first fund? Yeah, our, our capital structure is fairly simplistic. We have an 8% accumulating preferred return. Every distribution thereafter goes to pay down capital accounts. After capital accounts are returned to investors, uh, everything is split 70-30, whether it's a distribution from a operational cash flow, refinance proceeds, or a sale. Um, we've made our fourth consecutive quarterly preferred return distribution, distribution uh, about a week ago for Q2. And we anticipate being able to do that moving forward. Um, and you mentioned earlier, Mike, when we got on the on the podcast together, how important cash flow is right now. And you know, the old adage that cash is king is still important, but I think today cash flow is king, and people just really want uh, predictable, repeatable dividends. And if you can uh, if you can create that, uh, that's that's compelling. Yeah, agreed. We're dealing with a yield-starved environment with rates having dropped yep. where they are. The, there's really no no great alternatives in, in, in the Wall Street. The, the bond yields are very low. Uh, unless you're dealing with the, with the really junk bonds and you're buying into high-risk stuff. But if, you, if you're looking for conservative cash flow, hard to find. So 8% is not bad. Uh, and But what's the target return? Uh, this is a closed-ended fund, as I understand it. What's the total return following the waterfall? Eight, eight perhaps seventy thirty over over eight. What's the um, uh, what's the target total return? We're, yeah, we're, we're targeting a sixteen eighteen percent investor level IRR, so net to investors, and that translates just under a two x equity multiple over a, a five to seven year hold. And we're forecasting roughly half of that return to be realized from distributions from operational cash flow. And the balance of that return to be realized either with a recap, refi, or a sale. Yeah, I like it very much. I, you know, there's, there's a big part of educational content they've put together in the past, and we also look at the stuff. Is what portion of a total return comes in cash? Yep. So if that number is low, if you're getting 25 percent, then you're really speculating on the back end for the thing to sell at a price or, or number of facilities yeah. to sell. But if you could generate 50 percent plus. Uh, at least you, you lock that in, and even if the exit price is not as great as you project, it feels uh, that you've gotten you know substantial portion, at least half of the return in, form, in the form of cash. Yeah, if it uh, if it doesn't go well and people get distributions uh, from preferred return distributions along the way and they get their money back, it's not a home run by any means, but uh, it still created a, a passive reliable dividend. So that's that's mainly what we're focused on, or, or distributable cash flows current. Yeah, makes sense. We got to talk about your fund too. Where you're trying to scale up uh, the, you'll you'll be dealing a little bit more competition when you get bigger. So you start going after the big acquisitions. There are it's a little bit more competitive, but you also have the economy of scale. So it's kind of interesting how it's going to look. Yeah, larger larger basis deals certainly drive down the yield on cost, both going in and the uh, the yield on cost stabilized. Uh, but you're also deploying more capital. Arguably, it's a it's a better asset because it's larger and probably newer. Uh, but we're certainly going to have some challenges uh, in the acquisition side, sourcing deals that make sense, as we've always had through our entire careers. Uh, you know, finding good deals is is difficult all the time. Yeah, yeah, it is. It yeah. is, and, and and that whole thesis. Uh, the reason it, it's gotten very competitive because of the REITs. They've come in and they they've gobbled up a lot of these sixty thousand 
uh, square feet plus facilities, many of them 100, 120 and higher. So uh, the, the, they have the capital utilization problem. So they're paying lower and lower um, cap rates. Uh, they got to put the money to work. But my fear in this, just a quick, and it's, it's you know, it's an opinion. It's nobody, nobody got a crystal ball. Uh, the way I like to put it, my, my, my own broke, and I can't find a new one for sale. So, but the thesis is this, as the interest rates drop, uh, the cap rates uh, should match. So directionally, we, we had COVID, which is terrible. It's, you know, it's a pandemic, and we're all suffering from, from you know, health-wise and, and economically. Um, but on the other side, you got uh, drop rates. So uh, what Fed has done is created an environment where uh, investors uh, are willing to take lower cap rates because of the cost of capital is, is, is cheap. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the financing looks like. Uh, uh, by the way, what's been acquiring new facilities now? So what has happened with the rate available uh, to finance these facilities? Has it dropped um, in conjunction with the Fed dropping rates? Uh, we typically leverage commercial banking relationships to finance our self-storage facilities. Unfortunately, the asset class doesn't enjoy the uh, financing benefits of multifamily, uh, which to your point, Mike, is a big reason I think cap rates in that asset class are so low when you can lock up 30-year non-recourse debt at a two and a half to three. Uh, you can pay a pretty low yield on cost and still make a decent equity dividend. Um, and self-storage, uh, commercial banks really have gotten to kind of an interest rate floor where it doesn't really matter how low rates drop. They still need to have a minimum to make a spread. So we've seen our rates drop to around 4%. Um, nominal origination fees. Uh, one material change we've seen is, as a result of COVID in the capital markets is a reduction in the maturity date on our on our debt financing. So before COVID, we were typically getting 10-year maturities, which means the loan has to be paid off within 10 years. Uh, lately, we've been only getting five and seven-year maturities. Uh, so it's it's not it's not as ideal as 10, obviously, but five to seven years at a fixed rate is still a pretty good hedge against inflation and you know potentially a, a rising rate environment down the road. But uh, commercial banks are still lending. We really haven't seen any other changes beyond just our, our maturity dates and kind of that floor of 4% on our, on our interest rates. Great commentary. Um, I, I, I certainly, um, so you, you said something that's, I believe it's an impossible scenario for me. The rising interest rates is, I'm going to make that comment again. As much as people are fearful of rising rates because all real estate would, prices would, 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 would soften as a result of increasing rates, I just don't believe the United States can afford uh, high interest rates. We're moving again to, towards Japan, EU model with likely negative rates. The reason for this is uh, we're printing debt, printing money, Fed balance sheet is expanding, and um, the debt service on national debt and, and, and continuous support for the economy just cannot afford high interest rates. So that's my theory. So the fear of rising interest rates um, is less of a concern. So when you lock up the shorter duration, well, that's the worry and the risk. When you come, if you come to the maturity and the rates are higher than today, then it's it's a challenge to refi. Yep. Uh, but my my personal opinion, and I could be wrong, uh, is that we just now are going to see higher rates. We are where we are. We may stay here, uh, and uh, if we, we we can't go into negative rates, so I'll kind of um, 
But let me continue with uh, some other questions. So uh, non-self-storage, you, you've, you've, you've been dealing with a little bit of COVID impact. Uh, how the things have been going? Have you made progress with your tenants? Uh, have they been able to reopen? And you're yeah, in Denver. Well, I don't know what, what's the political theme in Denver and how things are, are they, you know, is the city reopening, reopen? What's been going on? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the effect of COVID briefly on our retail portfolio, and then I can talk about our, our effect we're seeing on self-storage as well. Uh, on the retail side, um, when our shutdown first happened in Denver back in March, we automatically gave our retail tenant base two months of deferred rent, not free rent, but deferred, just in the hopes that that would help them get through this, get their PPP funds and reopen in, in, uh, in June. And all of our tenants have reopened successfully with the exception of one. And she was a gym concept and just decided it didn't make sense to try to hang on. Uh, so she, she got out of her lease, but uh, the rest of them had opened up and are good to go. But uh, April and May were obviously tough months from a revenue perspective when you go from a lot of rent to no rent. Um, but uh, we're hopeful that things are going to continue to improve. As far as what's happening in our city, uh, we're, we're back open for business. Uh, there are some restrictions on bars closing down earlier. Um, and there's obviously physical occupancy restrictions at restaurants. Um, the city has been pretty good at uh, allowing users to open up patio space uh, in public areas and right-of-ways, like closing part of a, a street down, for example, for patio space or closing a sidewalk down that normally wouldn't be allowed for patio space. So that's helped a lot. Um, as it relates to our self-storage portfolio, we, we haven't seen any, any major impacts on it. Uh, the negative things we have seen was our leasing velocity uh, for May and June, which are typically pretty buoyant times of the year for self-storage leasing, were lighter than we expected. Uh, net leasing was still positive, but it certainly wasn't at the clip we were hoping for this time of the year. Um, our delinquency rates, though, which we're pleased to see, have not increased. They're in line with the, where they typically are this time of the month and this time of the year. Um, you know, nationally, one thing we track pretty consistently is national street rates on 10 by 10 non-climate controlled units. And uh, that's a, it's obviously a, a, a big, big net to cast when you're talking about national numbers. But those roughly went down year on year from June to June by about four and a half percent. Uh, the good news is it feels like that's bottomed out because there wasn't a further increase on July numbers. Um, and with our portfolio, we did see a nominal increase in revenue from June to July by about 3%. So we feel like things have kind of bottomed out in the self-storage sector. Uh, with that being said, we still have the headwinds of a lot of markets that are hyper-supplied. Uh, markets like Charleston and Denver, which is obviously our backyard. A lot of new product was built, and you touched on this earlier, Mike, but self-storage is so sensitive to the local supply ratios. Uh, once you get over eight or nine square feet per capita in the one, three, and five-mile trade radius, you really start to see a meaningful drop in occupancy and rates, and it kind of becomes a, a race to the bottom. So we do have the non-COVID headwinds nationally of dealing with a lot of new players in the space with a lot of new ground-up construction projects happening, but from a street rate perspective and as it relates to COVID, it feels like things are starting to stabilize, but this whole thing is uh, obviously month by month. Yeah, I, I hear you touched on, on a number of really, really great points. Um, the, the oversupply is a risk. How do you protect against that risk when you get into uh, projects? I mean, you can't protect against somebody just deciding to convert an old dysfunctional mall into a self-storage facility, right? Yeah, you can't. There's there's some uh, subjective ways and objective ways to protect against that. Um, 
we try to focus on facilities that we can have a total capitalization that is equal to or less than replacement cost. So if someone, if someone were to build a facility nearby us, their rates would need to be substantially higher than ours to achieve the same total yield on cost, given that their basis is higher. Obviously, it would be a little bit nicer a facility because it's brand new. Uh, but storage is, to a degree, a commodity. It's almost like uh, stopping at the gas station. You don't, you don't want to stop and get gas necessarily, but you need to. And you're typically going to pick the most convenient location, and maybe you're going to look at price, maybe you're not. Um, other ways we try to mitigate against that is uh, when we can, we select acquisitions and municipalities that are averse to new self-storage development. And it's always possible someone's going to get a project approved. But uh, if you have a, a local government environment that does not want more self-storage supply, uh, chances are you're not going to see new supply in that sub-market for the foreseeable future. So really yeah. replacement cost and kind of uh, local government conditions are, are two things that we look at from a, from a risk of new supply perspective. And you got to know, know some local politicians and get their, their thoughts on, on uh, generally cities don't like a lot more self-storage. They, they already had oversupply, but all these dysfunctional malls and the COVID yeah. that broke that, that, that whole sector even harder now. Yeah. So what's going to happen with all these big retailer boxes? Um, yeah, the, the challenge on these retail conversions, we've looked at a number of these over the years, uh, is the, the cities are typically really resistant to changing the zoning that the, uh, the project is under. So they'll believe that some big box grocer is going to come in at some point down the road, even though the project has been vacant for five years and there's weeds in the parking lot and, you know, homeless camps outside. They still kind of hold on to the hope that someday a retailer is going to come in. And because of that, they've been uh, typically resistant to changing the zoning use to allow for self-storage conversion. Yeah, great. A lot of folks get those done, though. Uh, it's just uh, it's a lot of heavy lifting on the uh, on the city side. You see, sort of we wind up getting involved with in politics. So dirty. That's sport. right. We got to be careful how deep we go there, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, sounds great. Brilliant, brilliant commentary. Appreciate your your wisdom. We're almost uh, out of time. Uh, final thoughts and how would people reach out to you if they're interested in your funds? Want to chat with you? Uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, people can hit me on LinkedIn or go to our website, uh, www.vanwestpartners.com. And uh, always looking to make new contacts. So appreciate, for, appreciate you throwing that out there, Mike. Thank you very much, Jake. Uh, pleasure and a privilege to have you once again. Uh, always great talking with you. Uh, great insight on self-storage and um, great commentary. Got to do it again. We'll, we'll wrap up this episode. We're out of time, but we'll do another one uh, soon enough. So thank you kindly. Thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike Zlotnick. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.